Well, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and uh, thank you, Ashley, for sharing, and thank you, Paula, and the rest of your team for the music this morning. We're going to be looking at a number of different passages today, and I'm going to make sure I've got this thing on here. All right, we're good. Four different passages today, so I will just uh, give those to you as we go. But I want to talk this morning about the building blocks of life. Uh, the building blocks of life. And I, I realize in doing this, because we recognize Sanctity of Life Sunday every year, um, I'm reminded of the fact that the subject of abortion is both personal and painful for, for many. And, you know, I don't meet a lot of people who think that abortion is good and that there should be more of it. Those people are out there. They have loud voices. But the people we usually meet are people who struggle with this question and perhaps don't have a lot of good information or understanding. And um, it's important for us uh, in proclaiming the gospel to come alongside and to provide the truth in the hope that is ours in Jesus. And I really appreciate the work of the Pregnancy Center. They, they stand for truth and they lead with love. And they have done that for many, many years. And the gospel really is the centerpiece of our message in this time and on this issue that God offers us hope in the midst of whatever our failures have been. And he gives us that promise of forgiveness through Jesus Christ as we humbly come to him. So that has to always be front and center when we come to uh, matters like this. And I pray that that will be clear today. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we come to your word and as we consider the building blocks of life, as you have given them to us, help us to put these things together in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that the Spirit will speak to us and uh, encourage us and challenge us to each grow in these critical areas. We commit this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to look at building blocks of life today. And as you can see on the screen there, there are four of them, each beginning with a different letter, spelling the word life. So hopefully we can follow along here uh, pretty easily. And as we go through these four building blocks of life, we're going to see that these are the, the foundations upon which we should build our understanding of what life is and why uh, it is to be valued and even considered um, uh, you know, that, that there is sanctity in life because of who God made us and how God made us. And I want us to just walk through these four together in the time that we have. And the first is L. And for L, I want us to think of this word liberty. Liberty. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 2, um, verses 8 through 12. Really, verse 12 is the one I want to highlight, but we can look at the context there as well. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And I'll begin in verse 8. James writes here, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty. This past October, I had a very special opportunity, and I've probably told some of you this story already, but as a proud dad, I will just continue to tell this story over and over again, probably. But in October, my daughter May was invited to go to Hillsdale College, along with two other students from her school, to recite a huge portion of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I don't know how many paragraphs it was, but it was a lengthy chunk. Two paragraphs. Um, and uh, Betsy DeVos, who at that time was the Secretary of Education, uh, was the speaker at this event at Hillsdale College, and they wanted, as the uh, kind of the introduction to her remarks, this group of seven or eight uh, students from various uh, classical academies from throughout Ohio and Michigan to come and recite the Declaration of Independence. And uh, we got a call from the principal less than a week before the event asking if she would come. And we're, we're like, well, how long have they been working on this? Well, they haven't started yet. <laughs> she learned this in like six days or five days. It was incredible, but way to go, May. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm bragging now. After the, after the event, after the banquet, um, uh, Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. His daughter uh, came up to us just to thank us for coming, and he, uh, or she, she said, you know, I was sitting at the, at the head table with the president of the college and all the other important people here, and she said most of those guys had tears in their eyes as they heard these children recite the Declaration of Independence. And what is it about those words? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words are the foundation of our nation's government and what makes them so stirring to us. Well, notice when you teach about the Declaration of Independence, one of the things to emphasize is the fact that the law does not give us our rights. The law and the Declaration of Independence recognize our rights and protect our rights. But our rights don't come from the law. Our rights come from the Creator, don't they? And it's the responsibility of the law to, to uphold and to recognize and to protect those rights. And as Americans, we have always treasured and valued that principle. And, and I, I, I some ways think that maybe they're even written here in the order of importance, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, with life be, being the first. But liberty being the second. And what is this liberty? Well, James speaks about it here. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And what is liberty? 
Well, it's, it's that freedom to uh, not have to be restrained by others unnecessarily, that, that ability to do and to be what, what you desire to be, but liberty has limits, doesn't it? It says in verse 8, which I read earlier, if you really fulfill the royal law, so he's speaking of law here again, he mentions the royal law according to the scripture. What is that royal law? He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, James is saying that loving your neighbor as yourself is the necessary basis for liberty to function. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Liberty only works when we live by the golden rule. Because liberty, my liberty is always going to run up against somebody else's liberty. And how do we negotiate when the two liberties are in competition with one another? Well, the Bible makes it clear. The golden rule ought to be our guide. And in this matter of life, do we not have a question of, of competing liberties? The choice of one versus the choice of another. The liberty of one to choose one thing and the liberty of another to choose another. And so when we come to this question of being pro-life or being pro-choice, the golden rule decides the matter, doesn't it? Because uh, the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the law of liberty here wins in favor of life. So liberty is one of these foundations that we respect and understand as a building block for our lives. And it's one that our, our nation's founding has upheld, but has unfortunately strayed from in more recent times. So we have liberty. We also have now the letter I, and we are going to here see the image of God. The image of God. And I'll have you turn to Genesis chapter 127. If liberty is our reference to law, the image of God would be our reference to theology. We see what the law says about life. Let's see what theology, what does God say about life? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, as God is creating the universe, as he's creating the world, as he's creating human beings. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is so foundational to our whole understanding of life and its value and its importance. And notice a few things here. First of all, who created us? God did. So we were made by God. That sure makes us special, doesn't it? Just the very fact that God formed us. He fashioned us. And not only that, how did he make us? He made us in his own image. Isn't that amazing? That is mind-boggling to consider that he created us, male and female, in his own image. Now, there's so much to what all that means, but certainly the dignity and the respect and the honor and the, the sanctity of life is grounded in this reality made by God, made in the image of God. That every child 
Every person, every, uh, every one of us is, is, is blessed to have been made in the image of God. We are unique and we are special. Not because we stand in front of the mirror and tell ourselves that each morning so that we can have good self-esteem. We are unique and we are special because God made us that way. And he loves us each personally. J.D. Flynn is the editor-in-chief of the Catholic News Agency, and he recently wrote an article for First Things about raising his two children with Down syndrome. And I just want to share with you a little bit about what he wrote. He said, two of my children have Down syndrome. He said, I often marvel that their classmates don't seem to be afraid of them. Max and Pia are different from other children. Their speech is often incomprehensible. They play differently. They learn differently. They interrupt and sing loudly off-key and sometimes bolt from the classroom. But their classmates don't seem to be afraid. My children are greeted with hugs and high fives each morning at school. When they walk the halls, older children make it a point to call out their names and to say hello. One boy regularly angles in the classroom to be seated next to Max. Their schoolmates know my children, and in knowing them, they've come to love them. He goes on to say, if I'm being honest, I still find it difficult sometimes to talk with intellectually disabled adults that I don't know well. He says, I don't know where to begin. Their world is different. They are different. And their otherness provokes in many of us a kind of fear. That fear has led to a great deal of discrimination against intellectually disabled people. It's led to their isolation and institutionalization. It's led to loneliness. And for many children with Down syndrome today, it leads to abortion. He points out then later in the article how odd it is that when we live in a society that has more resources than ever in history to care for those who have disabilities like this, instead of giving them the opportunity to live, their opportunity to, to life is being taken from. The, uh, there's an article, I just, I just found this. Uh, this was printed December 18th, 2020. So it's less than a month old. From the Science Daily. And the headline is this. Prenatal testing has halved the number of babies born with Down syndrome in Europe. Study finds. The first paragraph says, the growth of prenatal screening in Europe has reduced the number of babies being born per year with Down syndrome by an average of 54%, according to a new study published in the European Journal of Human Genetics by researchers from the Massachusetts General Hospital and the International Down Syndrome Organizations. In research published in 2016, the same team found that 33% fewer babies with Down syndrome per year were born in the United States as a result of pregnancy terminations. Spain uh, appeared to be the highest on the list with an 83% reduction. I hate to even use that word. How can we use that word? All of these lives being taken because of a, a prenatal screening that suggests the child may have Down syndrome. And you know, that's, 
just could be the tip of the iceberg for some because that's what they happen to be able to screen for. What if they can start screening for all sorts of other things that we may or may not like? What happens to the image of God that he has created us with when we play God and decide who lives and who doesn't based on this characteristic or that characteristic? The building blocks of life depend on our understanding that life is sacred because we are made by God in the image of God. And, and, and then that some sort of criteria that we decide is, is somehow to judge whether a person lives or not. In an age that seems so bent on resisting discrimination, how can we be so blind? We must remember the image of God. So we have liberty, we have the image of God. And next I want to point out for the letter F, the word family. The word family. And I'm going to have you flip to 1 John for this one. 1 John, towards the very back of your Bible, chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3, and uh, I'll, I'll... Get to that in a second. But I remember a few years back, somebody trying to spark a debate with me on an odd subject. I had never thought of debating this before. This person who, who you know, believes they're a Christian and they, they go to church and have a different view than I do, apparently, on certain things, came up to me and said, you know, Christians put way too much emphasis on families. They said, you know, you got these organizations like Focus on the Family and all this emphasis on the importance of family and the nuclear family. This person tried to argue with me by saying, the Bible just really doesn't say that much about families and the importance of a family. They claimed that they knew their Bibles, I guess, and thought that they were going to somehow get me with this argument, I thought, what are you talking about? The Bible says all sorts of things about family. Now, it's not always the ideal family that we see in Scripture, is it? You go through the book of Genesis and you read, it's all about family, isn't it? But it's not always the most functional family, but they're families. God chose to, to bring his people up through a family. When Jesus was born, he was born into a family. Not exactly the ideal, perfect situation, uh, but it, 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 it worked. And Jesus was raised, and Mary and Joseph loved their son. And they taught him in the way that he should go, and they, they, they raised him in the way that he needed to be raised. The, the family is written into Scripture all through. And yet, as I thought about that, that peculiar challenge that this person tried to, to, to bring forth to me, probably the most compelling argument of all for the biblical uh, support of, of family is the fact that God uses the family relationships to describe his own relationship to us. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to point to something in these verses that maybe isn't the typical application, but it's certainly a legitimate application. Look at that with me. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Notice the way John sets this up. We are God's children. God is our father. You are his son or his daughter. Together as Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I can't think of a stronger affirmation of family than for God to say, that's how we relate together, spiritually. This is the most vital relationship we have. This is the building block of a, of a community, the building block of a society, the building block of a nation, the building block of a civilization. It comes back to the importance of our families. And also, when we know that if God is love, and we know that God is love, if the Bible pictures his love as being like the love of a parent for their child, what does that tell you about the depth of that love when that becomes the analogy that is used? What a powerful picture for the importance of the family. And yet I grieve, and I'm sure many of you grieve, at the fact that the family is in such a decline today. And it's, it's looked down on and, and discouraged in so many respects. Fewer people are, are getting married and, and fewer people are having children. And, and so often family life and marriage and parenthood is, is seen as some kind of an, uh, a hindrance on the, all the other things people want to chase in life. And yet all at the same time, when we have more young people than ever, in despair and in discouragement and scratching their heads wondering, what am I here for? What's my purpose in life? What, where do I find meaning in, in who I am? Did you forget about the family? Because I would just like to say that if your goal and purpose and vision in life is to be a husband or a wife, to be a mother or a father, and to raise children that you pray will one day love and fear the Lord, that there is no better purpose, cause, vision in life than that. I don't care what your career is. I don't care how many people recognize you or if you leave any kind of uh, uh, legacy by the world standards, leave a legacy through your family and you have accomplished something amazing. So to the young people out there, remember how valuable the family is. This is what God called us to, above all else. I often will tell people, faith, family, and then whatever else, you know, you want to work on. But too often we end up chasing something else. We end up looking for some other goal, some other ideal, some other dream that the world convinces us to go after. And, 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 and the family either just never happens or gets left behind in the process. I just want to tell a simple story. It's, a, it's an old story about two steamboats heading out of Memphis, heading down the, the Mississippi River for, for New Orleans, I suppose, carrying their cargo. And in the old days of steamboats, these boats were, were, were not necessarily that fast, but chugging down the river, these two boats heading out of Memphis at the same time, side by side, both going slow. The one says to the other, why don't we race? 
Let's see who can get there first. And they start piling on the coal. And the engines start running hotter. And the boats start chugging faster. And one of the boats starts to fall behind because their supply of coal is running low. And so the, one of the guys on the boat says, you know, why don't we just start burning some of our cargo instead? And, and, and that'll keep us going. And so they start throwing the cargo into the furnace of their steamboat. And they get faster and faster. And they, they finally catch back up to the other boat. And they arrive at New Orleans just in the nick of time to beat the competition and then realize we burned all our cargo. Is that what we're doing to the family today? Chasing all kinds of goals or ideas or pleasures and forgetting the most important thing of all, what God has called us to do in our lives, generation by generation. We have liberty. We have the image of God. We have the family and finally then, we need to engage. We need to engage with this world where we are at in the time in which we find ourselves. And I want you to keep yourself in 1 John. You probably just need to look to the next page. 1 John now, chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. 1 John 4, verses 9 through 11. Here John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God did not stand far off from our problems. God entered in. God engaged our fallen and broken world. God came to us through his son because he loved us. And verse 11 here then is the key. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How do we do that? How do we demonstrate that in our lives each day, particularly as we are remembering these building blocks of life? Well, we can engage in a number of different ways. We can engage through the political process. And that is so important and so critical. And I know there's there's frustration right now. I, I get that. And the discouragement or concern about, you know, what's, what's coming as, as uh, we understand that President-elect's uh, agenda is not a pro-life agenda. What is that going to mean? We need to pray. We need to pray as we always have needed to pray. And yet, we need to also remember that there is a lot going on at a lot of different levels. Just to, to give you some, some ideas, here in Ohio, we continually see pro-life legislation uh, moving forward. Just last week, Governor DeWine signed into law the telemedicine abortion ban. It prohibits abortion providers from prescribing abortion-inducing drugs through telemedicine. It's an important step. 
Uh, last December, other measures were also passed by the Ohio legislature. There are things that are done. Much of it is incremental, and most of it is at the state levels. But because we have faithful leaders in our government who still work within the system, the cause for life is advancing, and we see good things happening. Um, I, I don't ever know whether this, to trust the various studies or statistics. Uh, the sources are sometimes uh, hard to, to, to evaluate, but I did see one recent um, chart that indicated that if you look at the abortion rate, that is the number of abortions per 1,000 women in the United States, that in the last few years it has actually gone lower than it was in 1972 during uh, the, when Roe v. Wade was passed. But that doesn't mean the problem is, 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 is in any way solved. But I'm pointing this out to say that there have been really significant measures taken and that the things are moving in some places, in some ways, in a positive direction. I pray, I pray earnestly, I hope you pray earnestly that one day Roe v. Wade will be overturned and that we will live in a land that no longer has that hanging over us. But in saying that, I want to remind everyone that that is not the end goal, that much more comes after that, because that simply reverts things all back to the states, and different states are going to decide things in different ways. But I want to remind you with a, a lesson from history, and as I've been teaching my history course throughout this year, you are discovering that you get little history examples along the way. Um, I won't apologize for that. I love history. But we just, in my history class, finished the unit on Reconstruction. And maybe it's been a long time since you took a United States history class and you're thinking, Reconstruction, what was that? That was the, that 10-year period in American history following the Civil War. And if you remember, the Civil War uh, was that great turning point in our, in our nation's history when finally the, that slavery was was overridden, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th amendments were finally passed, and, and slavery was made illegal. Uh, uh, African Americans were given the right to vote, and all these things were, were instituted to finally overcome this evil of slavery. But the lesson of Reconstruction is an important one for us to remember because while there was an initial improvement in the lives of those who had been freed from slavery, that improvement didn't last. You know, it's not enough to just tell the slaves you're free. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Who's going to protect them from those who would still desire to harm them? And, and eventually, many in the North who were so uh, determined to end slavery started to forget about the people that they had freed and had started to lose sight of the overall cause that mattered the most. And, 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 and so there's a, there's a lesson in that for us as well in this matter of life. The advocacy for life will continue until Christ returns. There's not some sort of legal finish line that we're aiming for. It will be a long, lifelong process. But let's continue to engage and to be involved. And we do that 
through acts of service. We do that through the lives that we live and through the example that we set and through uh, organizations like the Pregnancy Center that have done so much for so many, reaching out with love and compassion and a message of truth, a message of love, a message of life. And so we, we want to live that every day. We build it on liberty, the image of God, family, and engagement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us these building blocks of life, and we pray that we will be responsible in how we um, live these out. Uh, we thank you for what is being done, but we know that the work ahead is tremendous and that the cost of our failure is great. Lord, help us not to shrink back. Help us not to uh, be diverted. But Lord, help us to keep a laser focus on these things that matter so much to you. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name.